Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5 this evening. 're a small group. Last time we were this small, we didn't have a sermon, but I felt compelled this evening to go ahead and preach it. And um, far be it for me to um, ignore the what I believe to be the leading of the Lord. Um, so I'm going to preach it. Title of the message: Spirit and Prophecy. The Christian life is all about balance, balance in actions. Balance and perspectives. God is a God of love and a God of holiness. To see God as all love with no holiness makes God little more than the outworking of our human passion. To see God as a God of all holiness without love is to make Him angry, vindictive, cruel, wicked. Indeed, um, the worst of gods. There needs to be a balance recognizing that God is both love and Holy. God is sovereign and man has a free will. To see God as sovereign at the expense of free will makes us as humans automatons, robots, not able to choose but only able to respond. Thus it cheapens the concept of loving God to that which is irresistible. And a love which is irresistible is not love. A love which is not chosen by nature and definition cannot be genuine. On the other hand, if man's free will can override God's sovereignty, this makes God out of control, vulnerable, less than all-powerful. And therefore, all of the promises that God has given to us, all of the promises that God has made to us, could be thwarted. All of God's purposes could be thwarted if God is not 100% sovereign. And so we recognize a balance that God is fully sovereign, but somehow God has limited himself to some degree with respect to man's free will. We likewise, as a third example, do not need to be perfect to do righteous things in order to earn favor with God. For we know that favor with God has been earned through Christ's righteousness. Yet, at the same time, we are commanded by God to be righteous. To see God's grace as a means by which we don't have to be righteous is to take advantage of God's grace, to um, act under license and self-indulgence, which is, without a doubt, sinful and displeasing to God. However, to feel as though our relationship with God or God's favor is sourced in our good works is to give the impression or to think that we somehow have a hand in pleasing God, which we do not, for it is all Christ, and therefore we fall into legalism. Again, we must strike that balance where we recognize that God desires us to be righteous, but it's not a righteousness to earn His favor. It's a righteousness that is compelled by the fact that God has already placed His favor upon us. Balance. In all of these areas of Christianity, and certainly more than that, God asks for us to understand and operate in a balance between two extremes. And in fact, in all of these examples, both extremes are error. Both extremes are sinful. Such balance is also used 
by God and how He ministers unto us through His Word and through the Spirit. Two separate but interrelated aspects of the testimony of truth in this world. The Spirit of God and the Word of God. If we just trust the Spirit of God to do the work, then we will find our ministry out of balance, recognizing, uh, refusing to recognize the power of the Word of God. If we place too much or a complete emphasis upon the Word of God to the exclusion of the Spirit, then we will find a, a ministry that has no power. For the Spirit of God is the power through which we minister. No truth without the Word of God, no power without the Spirit of God. No truth without the Word of God, no power without the Spirit of God. We need both the Spirit and, as the text will say tonight, prophecy if we are going to be proper ministers of the Word of God. And so this evening we're going to look at two short verses. 1 Thessalonians five nineteen and 20, which say this, Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesyings. Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesyings. And let's look at these two in turn. Then we'll see how they relate and see how that applies to us this evening. So we begin in verse 19. Quench not the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the divine third person of the Trinity. And this verse uh, states very clearly that He can be quenched. That word in the Greek, quenched, literally means to extinguish or to put out as if uh, extinguishing a fire, putting out a fire in a lamp or, or in a fire pit. When you extinguish that fire, when you put it out, when you smother it, that is the idea um, behind this word to quench where Paul says, do not or quench not the Spirit of God. And we must first understand, as we mentioned, that the Spirit of God is God Himself, uh, the third person of the divine Trinity. And the Scriptures tell us that the Spirit of God indwells us at the moment of our salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 tells us this, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. This verse tells us that the Spirit of God indeed indwells us, that the Spirit of God is living inside of us. We see a similar concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, where Paul says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? So again, uh, telling us that the Spirit of God indwells us, that He is literally living and operating inside of us. It would be mentioned as well in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where Paul writes this, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. These few verses are but a sampling. In fact, my wife and I were studying in 2 Corinthians last night as we're studying in the evenings together in, in Scripture and, and we came across uh, verses that um, stated very clearly, the Holy Spirit's indwelling, the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And it is a truth that we recognize quite clearly from the Word of God. Now, the Spirit has many operations in the world itself. 
John verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 8. John 16, 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit is busy in the world doing three things. Convicting or convincing the world of sin because they believe not on Christ. Of righteousness because Jesus has gone to his Father. And of judgment because Satan has been judged. When the gospel goes forth into the ears of an unbeliever, when an unbeliever is experiencing the conviction of sin, when they are recognizing their need for a Savior, they are being reproved by the Holy Spirit of sin because, the, and, and specifically John 16 tells us it's the sin of unbelief, that they do not believe on Christ, of righteousness, that Jesus Christ has gone to His Father, that He is the righteous substitute for our sin of unbelief, and of judgment, that Satan has been judged and that if they do not change from belief to uh, from unbelief to belief, if they do not repent of their unbelief and place their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, the one who has gone to His Father to be saved, then they will share in the judgment of the prince of this world, and that is an eternity in hell. And that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the heart of unbelievers. Conviction is what we call it, specifically reproving the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, which is why on Sunday mornings, as I pray for people to be saved, I pray that the Holy Spirit would indeed convict their hearts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But this evening, we're going to be focusing in on the ministry of the Holy Spirit that He performs in the believer, the one who is indwelled by the Spirit of God. And that ministry is that of filling, empowering, convicting, guiding. And we're just going to take a few minutes to talk about this. It's not going to um, take too much of our time this evening. Filling, empowering, convicting, guiding the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We've come here many times, but let's talk about it because it's essential to our understanding of the Spirit's ministry. Galatians chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Paul writes this, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Things like that, he says, and things like that. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, those whose lives are defined by nothing but the flesh are those who have not been saved. It's not saying that if you do these things, you will lose your salvation, but much rather, those who are living lives defined by complete submission to their flesh manifesting nothing but the, the works of the flesh, uh, loving the flesh, pursuing the flesh, these are those who are not inheritors of the kingdom of God. These are those who by their own actions are not believers. But then he says in verses 
22 and 23, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Against such, he says, is no law. And he continues saying, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. And he says, if we live in the Spirit, here it is, let us also walk in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives, certainly many ministries to be sure, but one of them is bearing fruit. Bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Working in us the righteousness which is of God by faith. And thus bearing these virtues in our lives. The Holy Spirit leads us into righteousness, producing that righteousness as we submit ourselves to Him. It's the Spirit of God within us that gives us the power to resist temptation and to resist sin. It's the Spirit of God within us that compels us to love righteousness and to hate evil. But there's another very important element of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Uh, An element which we'll speak of in just a moment after we talk about our second verse. One that plays a very important role in what we're speaking of tonight, the importance of truth and how truth is disseminated and how it is brought forth in our hearts and in this world. But let's take a look at this second verse before we do that. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 20 goes on and it says this, despise not prophesyings. Despise not prophesyings. That word despise in the Greek literally means to set aside or to lightly Esteem. When um, we think about prophecy, the concept of prophecy in Scripture is twofold. As we think of the idea of a prophet, we think of a ministry of what we call foretelling or telling the future. Telling people of an event that has yet to happen, that has not yet come to pass. But this was only a small part of the prophetic ministry. In fact, we'd say that in a manner of speaking, it was a minor part of the prophetic ministry, a minimal part of their ministry. The primary purpose of the prophet and the office of the prophet, uh, as we look in the Old Testament, as we look in the New Testament, as we see it even used in pagan culture and not in in culture, in uh, biblical culture, was what we would say to be foretelling or declaring, um, in the biblical sense, the word of God. To hear, to interpret, and to relay the will of God to others. This was the primary function of the prophet. To hear the word of God and the will of God to interpret the Word of God and the will of God, and then to pass the Word of God and the will of God on to others. The true prophetic ministry was uh, expounding upon and accurately applying the revealed Word of God into the ears of the people. Now, there were times when they were doing this where they would use signs and wonders and revelations of future events. But by and large, when they did that, by and large, when they used these sorts of things, the signs, the wonders, and the foretelling of future events, they did so as a means by which to validate 
the word of God and the will of God. It was a means for them to prove that what they were saying was true. And so Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He was God's prophet to speak to Pharaoh the will of God. And Pharaoh said, I don't know this God. And Moses said, well, let me introduce you to him. And there were plagues that came upon Egypt as a way of proving that what Moses was saying about the will of God was true. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see this happen where God has a message for Israel. And the message was typically, get yourself right. Stop sinning. Repent of your sin. And in order to validate the ministry of the prophet, to prove to Israel that the man speaking was in fact a prophet of God, the man would do signs and do wonders. And when the people saw the signs and wonders, they would know that this man was from God. Ironically, quite often, um, when they saw those signs and wonders, they would instead reject the man um, because they weren't interested in his message. And of course, the greatest of these was Jesus Christ himself, who came doing great signs and great wonders and um, proclaiming the will of God and the word of God. He was the, the um, proverbial prophet, the prototypical prophet, and yet he was rejected of those who should have seen his prophetic ministry and accepted it. And so we see that not only was this the Old Testament idea of a prophet, but the New Testament does not deviate from this idea of prophecy. There were certainly interested instances where the prophet of God was used by God to proclaim some future event to foretell an event, but his primary ministry was for men to hear and understand the word of God as he declared the word and the will of God to them. And as Paul teaches the Thessalonian church here, he was very careful to state that they should be, that they should take care to not despise prophesyings, to not despise, to set aside, to lightly esteem those who were tasked by God with the interpretation recognition and declaration of his word and his will. Throughout history, the prophet has been the most despised of God's servants. The teacher simply had to tell people what the Bible said. He didn't always connect the dots, and so people didn't mind the teacher all that much. But the prophet told people what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. And the prophet was oftentimes risen up in a time where people had walked away from the Word of God and the will of God. And so they needed prophets to call them back to God. Even when it wasn't convenient, even when it wasn't acceptable, even when it wasn't comfortable, the prophet was called to declare God's Word. We also know from Scripture that in the early church there arose a movement that saw the ministry of the prophet as beneath other spiritual gifts. And we see this in 1 Corinthians. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14, the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 14 is devoted to Paul detailing why the gift of prophecy should be considered more important in the church than the gift of tongues. And the reason he says that the gift of prophecy is more important than the gift of tongues is because the gift of prophecy edifies the church, builds the church up, 
And so it's excessively important to the church. Whereas the gift of tongues doesn't really edify well because nobody can understand what they're saying. And unless there's an interpreter. And then there's one interpreter, one man speaking. It's not as efficient, it's not as effective at building up the church of God. And so Paul spends the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 14 telling them prophecy is an important spiritual gift. The and hearing, interpretation, and disseminating of the will and the word of God is an essential aspect of Christ's church. And so we see that there was this movement that kind of lightly esteemed prophesying in the church. And Paul did not want this to happen in the Thessalonian church. So he mentions here, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying. Peter would say this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. I know we're going all over the place tonight, but bear with me here. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That nothing in the Scripture, that no declaration of the will of God and the expectation of God, no declaration of God is of private interpretation. The essence of prophecy is that God has a will to express. It is not up to us to redefine His will. It's not up to us to privately interpret what we think God meant. It's up to us to, to understand what God meant and to declare what God actually meant. His will, not our understanding of His will, but His will. And so God has in every age raised up men who are able to, through reading God's Word, in, in the New Testament church at least, understand God's will and thus give that to others. Now I give you these two verses, Second Peter 1 verses 20 and 21, to show how prophecy was made manifest and how uh, the prophet is not intended to personally interpret the Word of God for himself, but rather to rightly divide the Word of Truth and disseminate that knowledge. But if we go back one verse, we see that Peter is in fact speaking about the importance of believers obeying the Bible. This isn't just about prophecy and foretelling. It's about the Bible itself. And he says this in verse 19 of Second Peter 1, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. Peter says that we as a church have a more sure, a more reliable word of prophecy than if the prophets were actually standing in front of us today because we have the completed revelation of Scripture perfectly preserved, divinely inspired in our hands. We can read it. We can access it today. And Peter says that we would do well as believers to take heed because the Word of God is, in his illustration here, as a glimmer of light in the darkness of the world. It is our only sustenance. It is our only light until such time that Jesus Christ returns and shines the light of His glory into the darkness of the world through His presence. Now Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 tells us this. The Word of God is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God is the truth of God and its truths have the capacity to reveal us for who we really are, to reveal the nature of our own hearts, 
to dig down to the very deepest essence of who we are, to expose our hypocrisy, to expose the lies, to, to uh, root out the sins that are hiding in our hearts. It is a discerner of our thoughts and our intents. We can pretend all we want. We can play the game all we want. But when we are confronted with the realities of God's Word, we are confronted with the truth of God. There is no hiding from it. James calls the Scriptures the perfect law of liberty. And he likens the impact of the Word of God to looking into a mirror. That when we read the Word of God, we look into a mirror and we see ourselves for who we really are. We see every ugly blemish. We see every problem. And uh, he warns us not to be forgetful hearers, not to look into the mirror of the Word of God and to see all of the ugliness that is ourselves and then to walk away as if there's no problem, but rather to recognize that ugliness and to use our understanding of who we are through the Scriptures to become more like Christ. As we continue learning about what the Scriptures are, as we talk about it as prophecies or prophesying, um, we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, uh, this teaching about the Word of God, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, it says, truly furnished unto all good works. God's Word has the capacity to form in us the character of God. Every bit of God's Word is profitable in us unto godliness. And thus through the power of the Word of God, that quick and powerful Word that can uh, be a, a, the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, the Word of God can position its hearers to be ready unto every good work. Now with all of these principles of the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures enumerated, understanding that the Holy Spirit indwells us, that He is God, that He is um, working in us, uh, understanding that the Word of God is quick and powerful and it's perfecting us and it's, it's molding us and uh, recognizing these truths together, let's begin to merge them. And we begin merging them with the teaching of Paul in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 17, which says this, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saying, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How can they believe on Him, we ask, of whom they have not heard? How can they believe on a Christ of whom they have not heard? How can they hear of this Christ if there's no one to tell them? And Paul's great conclusion in Romans 10.17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The hearing of the Word of God is the source of all faith. 
It is the declaration of the Word of God that brings about the knowledge of God that then compels people to place their faith in the Word of God. May I say that again? It is the declaration of the Word of God that brings about the knowledge of God that then compels people to place their faith in the Word of God. But indulge me here to add one more layer to this concept as we put all of this together. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10-15 through 15 tells us this about the Spirit of God and His role. God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. And this is the final piece of the puzzle. Jesus Christ taught of the reality of the Holy Spirit's illumination, that the Holy Spirit, when the Comforter comes, he promised in John, he would teach the disciples of all things. John reiterates this concept in 1 John, that the Holy Spirit is within us, teaching us truth and error, illuminating the Word of God, into our hearts. See, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But any spiritual concept can only be understood as the Holy Spirit of God reveals it to a man. This is what we already talked about, conviction in the heart of a man. So in the life of an unbeliever, faith comes by hearing the Word of God and having the Holy Spirit convince him of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, as John 10 told us, and thus recognizing his need for salvation. In the life of a believer, however, we've already accepted the truth of Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit literally and physically living inside of us. We have a capacity to understand spiritual concepts and to understand the world around us in light of those spiritual concepts. And this is not just possible, but this is natural to the believer. This is expected to the believer. The Holy Spirit is active inside of you, renewing your mind, coloring your perspective on the world around you, granting you understanding and wisdom and insight into the Word of God. When you read or when you hear the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is actively working to apply those Scriptures to your heart. As you live The Holy Spirit is actively compelling you to do that which is right, actively convicting you when you do that which is wrong. As you minister, as you tell others the Gospel, the Holy Spirit empowers you, bringing Scriptures to your mind that you may not have even remembered for a while, helping give proper answers to people's questions, impressing upon you the need to act on another's behalf or to go and speak to a certain person. So the Holy Spirit is, is essential to understanding the Word of God. The Word of God is the teaching, and it is powerful, through the application of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As the Spirit of God illuminates our hearts, 
to the truths of the Word of God, we then, through the power of the Spirit, act them out in our lives. And now Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19 and 20, quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesyings. He warns that it is indeed possible to frustrate the Holy Spirit's capacity to speak to you and to minister to you and thus to minister through you. That though the Holy Spirit indwells you, you can deny the Spirit's teaching. That though the Holy Spirit indwells you, you can, through your will, inhibit His ability to bear that fruit that Galatians 5 speaks of in you. And as we've considered these concepts of the Word of God and of the Spirit of God together this evening, do you see how they play together? Do you see how a disregard for the Word of God, which is the express and written will of God, will, without question, quench the Spirit of God which is in you? If the Word of God is light, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to open your heart and mind to that light, then to disregard the Word of God would be the equivalent of closing the spiritual blinds of your heart. That you are not allowing the Spirit of God who is seeking to take the light of the Word of God and to shine it in your hearts, you're not allowing Him to shine. You are blocking Him off when you are quenching the Spirit of God. That though the Spirit of God is still within you, you have put a blanket over Him. You have denied Him the ability to influence you, to work in you and through you, but rather, you've chosen to fulfill the lust of your flesh. And can you see thus how despising prophesyings, as he says here in verse 20, can bring about as a natural consequence the quenching of the Spirit of God? So what does it mean? to quench the Spirit of God. Well, it means that we are either by sinful action or sinful inaction denying the Holy Spirit the ability to influence us. Unconfessed sin can quench the Spirit of God for we know that when we have unconfessed sin we are not in fellowship with God. Denying sound doctrine, rejecting sound doctrine, rejecting the clear teachings of the Word of God can quench the Spirit of God. Ignoring the promptings of the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God prompts you to to talk to that person, to give money to that person, to help that person, to call that person, and you deny that, you can quench the Spirit of God. And the solution. And the solution is to love God's Word. As Job was contending with his companions, in Job 23, verse 12, he said that he esteemed the words of God's mouth more than his necessary food. Jesus quoted this concept in the New Testament that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The key to not quenching the Spirit is to not despise prophesyings. The key to not quenching the Spirit is to elevate the Word of God so high in your life that it means more to you than anything. It means more to you than eating that day. It means more to you than 
than your other necessities. We elevate the Word of God to supreme importance. Then we become the canvas upon which the Holy Spirit can impress truth. And we also become a conduit through which the Holy Spirit can proclaim truth. And this is where God wants us this evening. God has not placed His Holy Spirit within you for you to go off and to do your own thing. God did not place His Holy Spirit within you so that you could ignore the Word of God and reinterpret the Word of God and twist the Word of God and confuse the Word of God and think that you know better than the Word of God. God placed the Holy Spirit within you and one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate your mind to the truths of the Word of God, to apply those truths to your life and then to help you enact them and and live them in your life. The whole point of you having the, the, the Holy Spirit within you is to make you capable of understanding and obeying the Word of God. Do we see that this evening? And if that is indeed the truth, then far be it from us to despise prophesying. And when we do, we are indeed quenching the Spirit of God. So how are we doing this evening? as we close our sermon and indeed close out our day of worship together. Are we nitpickers of God's Word? Do we pick and choose what is most convenient for us out of God's Word and then those things that are less convenient we just kind of ignore? When the Holy Spirit does indeed impress truths of God's Word upon our hearts, Are we willing to submit ourselves to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God? Or is what we want to do so important that we are willing to place our will above God's will as revealed through His Word? Are we despising prophesying as a church or as individuals or as families this evening and thus by despising prophesying, quenching the Spirit of God? Let's ask the Spirit of God to convict our hearts to show us this evening any area of our lives where we might be willingly, purposefully quenching, extinguishing the capacity of the Spirit to speak to us and to speak through us. Let's pray together.